Well, welcome, everybody. You are tuned in to the Private Investigator Experience. Your host is Phil Little, private investigator with over 50 years of experience. I am Wade Little. Let's jump right into it. Dad, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great, Wade, and welcome to all those that are joining with us on this, our second show. If you missed the first show, you would have heard a little bit about my background, and I'm just going to give you a very short summary for those that might be just checking in today. I started on a farm in Missouri to the military, to law enforcement in California, then into uh, private investigation and public and private intelligence service. And I own West Coast Detectives in Los Angeles, which is 101 years old. So now you know a little bit of my journey and watch the first show and you'll find out a little more, or you can check us out online. My experiences has been a little different than most local PIs. I had the opportunity to travel the world and find out about what was going out uh, on around the world. I worked a lot of international cases involving terrorism, money laundering, drug cartels, uh, child abduction, just to name a few. And I got the opportunity to meet and talk with people all over the world about crime issues in their area of the world. From what I learned from my international work, I have grave concerns about where our country is headed. Do you have concerns also? Perhaps you do. I have found those that who would like to overthrow our way of life, they've used the same actions all over the world, like they have a playbook. One of those is to create a violent society where citizens fear for their safety and chaos comes about where uh, the big sector has to respond with violence. We also have seen in these situations where police are downsized, stopped from enforcing laws, and repeat criminals are released back into the street. Sound familiar? As I'm talking to friends and people, I mean, I ask the questions, what are you? some of your concerns? And I found that many of them echoed my concerns. One, I'm concerned about the safety of neighborhoods and the rising crime. I'm concerned about criminals when being arrested or released right back to the streets. I'm concerned about local prosecutors. They don't enforce the laws they don't like. I'm concerned about what's being taught to our children in the schools. It seems that the government is more concerned about foreigners than the citizens. I'm concerned that my city is being overrun with uh, homelessness. Some areas aren't safe to go into. Our borders are being protected, and violent criminals are being let in. Inflation has gotten out of hand, and every month we find ourselves getting behind just buying the necessities of life. This is just part of the concerns that I'm hearing, and they are negative. And you might say, are there any positives? Is there anything that we can do about it? Is there anything that I could do about it? Yes, there is. And at the end, I'm going to share some of those solutions to uh, at least one of these problems, and then we'll look at more throughout other shows, and that I've used to share with others everywhere that I have had an opportunity to speak. There is hope. That's right. There is hope. And that is one of the elements, one of the, one of the prime reasons why we're doing this show is to provide answers to provide hope. And so actually at this time, I want to ask everybody, if you do us a favor, that's to subscribe to this channel, whether you're in a podcast, YouTube, wherever it is, go ahead, hit like, subscribe, tell your friends, let them know that this show is worth watching and check it out. Let them, let them know. We'd appreciate that very much. 
All right. So now as we look back at your book, Hostile Intent, and your counterterrorism handbook, you seem to be giving us a warning of what we in the West could experience. If citizens weren't given the true facts to make the right decisions. So from 1978 to today, have your concerns, these warnings you talked about, have they happened? Well, unfortunately, they have, Wade. In 1978, I was a Los Angeles PI doing most of my work in Southern California. I'd gone to Israel several times with uh, George Otis of High Adventure Ministries, who had asked me to be on his board. George was taking groups to Israel, and I love going just to walk where Jesus walked and find out about Bible times. I had my eyes open, though, in 1978 on our first trip into southern Lebanon, where we met Major Haddad, the leader of Free Lebanon. I was told the PLO was identifying Christians and were putting them on the spot just because they were Christian. Why would anyone do that? And then it wasn't very long before I had firsthand knowledge of being targeted. We were in, I'd gone into uh, Lebanon through the Israeli border and we were going about oh, six or seven kilometers north towards Beirut. And then we were going to go right out across the, the ridge above the Watani River. And as we were in that convoy of jeeps, there were five jeeps. And we were about halfway across, and the soldier driving our jeep said, Scout, incoming missiles. I thought, oh my God, what is going on here? I, we're really in a, in a war zone. And I could looked and I saw out of that uh, Bullfoot Castle, which had been there since the 12th century, uh, it was an imposing structure. It was now controlled by the PLO, and they had been firing missiles into uh, to northern Israel every night. And we saw the vapor trails of the missiles coming, and and then the the soldier kind of laughed and said, "Oh, don't worry, they'll miss us. They don't have guided missiles." And sure enough, they did, because I'm sitting here today. And I uh, realized then what it was to live in fear, and what the Lebanese people and today people all over the world who are living in fear just because of a minority situation, a Christian situation, they're live in fear of being ill. And so I think it's time that we started finding out for ourselves, each one of us, what is going on. Even though those missiles miss me, there could be more coming. Well, that's right. And so in what you just described and what you talked about in your book, Hostile Intent, you spent, I mean, several hours there in southern Lebanon on that first trip. And so what else did you see that caused concern about what was happening there? That might spread to the rest of the world. Well, first, it was the shot-up towns. We uh, drove through several towns, getting to Major Haddad's hometown. Every building was shot up, and there were very few people around that were still there. Most had fled because of all the killing before Major Haddad had come back to uh, southern Lebanon. And they were ones that were there were living in, in basements, uh, sandbag basements, as was Major Haddad. And there was just, just uh, fear and no hope. Everywhere you went, it was an eerie feeling. It was a war zone. And if any of you watching have been in wars in the military, you know what that's like. Some, in uh, I remember in uh, Los Angeles in the 1970s doing one of the violent uprisings there. I was down in South Los Angeles from uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's, and it was like a war zone. It was eerie. Well, it was that feeling. And then when we got back across the border, I learned from the Israelis that there had been many terrorist training camps in southern Lebanon that they had overrun. And they found records 
of people being trained from all over the world, even from the United States, and yes, from Southern California, where I was at. They'd been trained and they'd been gone back to their homes, country. Why? Why would there be training of terrorists there if the problem was just about, oh, the Palestinians are looking for a homeland, so they're fighting for that? I sensed that there was something more going on than just that area. And then I also learned, I, I was really naive, I guess. I believed in the press back in 1978, that our American press was was honest and they presented the facts and, and we could make the decision. We got the truth from them. That first trip and uh, a few later trips, I learned that the press was not doing that. They were slanting the stories. They were manipulating. Uh, they were making reports of their own. And they were many times filming situations that never happened and, and manufacturing them just to make the Israelis look bad. So when I got back to Los Angeles on that trip in 1978, sat in my office uh, with a stack of, uh, of records and letters and papers that I was supposed to be going through, I had a lot to think about. And uh, my, my life was kind of dull in L.A., and even as a P.I., after being exposed to, to missiles coming my way. Yeah, that's kind of funny. You, you think of, uh, of something being dull, but it's, it's the exciting life of a private investigator, things that you're doing, the cases that you're working. So, so getting back to the grind of, of, your, of your work in your Los Angeles office, you're, you're running your PI agency. And at that time, uh, you didn't have an international base set up and there was no other support group that, we, that you developed later on. So how did what you experienced, witnessed, and, and learned in, in Southern Lebanon impact you and uh, um, affect your future? Well, that's a good question, Wade. I, I was raised that all human life is created by God, and God has a purpose for each one of us, and, and we're supposed to respect life. And I was taught that, not to destroy it. And this was my first experience, really, of seeing with my own eyes the depravity of an evil that men could do to each other. Just because they were of a different religion. But since that time, I have seen what evil men and women could do all over the world, as you that are watching and listening, I'm sure it can too. And it spread way beyond anything I saw in 1978. Minorities all over the world are being killed just because of the way they believe. And so what started to form in my mind was something needed to be done. Uh, I didn't really know what, but I just had this. Kind of my gut feeling that I needed to try to do something. I needed to sound a warning to people around me. I believe that, and if you're watching this or listening to this, if you have knowledge of something that would help the good of mankind around you, something that would help people have a better life and environment, keep them safer and from violence, you have an obligation, and I believe I do too, to share that with people for the public good. And as I begin to think about this, this sitting in my office and uh, realized I'd been so naive about so many things, including the press, even though I was a, the detective that dealt in fact, just give me the facts, uh, I was still very naive about what was going on in the world around me. And I uh, knew that that had to change. And it changed quickly because suddenly I heard the buzzing of my phone from my assistant trying to reach me. All right, so here you are in your office, um, 
your mind basically is is thinking about Israel, southern Lebanon, thousands of miles, if not just a world away from from Los Angeles. I remember in your office that you had this eight by twelve world map on your wall with major cities highlighted and and lights of different places that uh, where offices were be or or connections and so forth. And but now with the phone buzzing, calling you back to your reality. And there aren't any missiles firing at you in Los Angeles, but you're back to your everyday life and the little issues that used um, that need to be handled. So, how did you deal with switching, you know, your mind back to this reality of work? Well, you know, when you uh, brought my mind back when you mentioned about the map, that map. When I took over West Coast Detectives, uh, and and we were headquartered in downtown Los Angeles, uh, Stanley Comstock who I'd taken it over from, uh, had that big map there, and I loved it. So I put one on the office out in uh, Los Angeles or in, in San Fernando Valley. And those cities I had highlighted, Paris, London, Germany, Bonn, Germany, uh, Israel, Hong Kong, uh, and out of places. I didn't have anything there, but I they had a dream and that someday we would have a reach and we would have people on the ground in those areas. And I guess a lot of it was to my, my love for the PI work. I love getting people answers. I loved having people say, well, you guys, you people did a great job for, for me. I, I should pay you more money. And uh, we loved that more than, than getting paid, actually, even though we needed to get paid. And so I was thinking about that. And then when my assistant said, there's a man and woman here, a husband and wife, they want to talk to you. They have a, a problem. When they came into my office, they were both very emotional. And I knew this wasn't an international case. This wasn't going to blow up and, and start a World War III. But to this couple, that case was just as important to them. And we treated it that way with every person that come to us, even with something minor that was important to them. Their 14-year-old daughter, they told me, had run away, been gone now for five days, and they had issued a, uh, a missing person report. She had been gone a couple of times before, but only for a day or two. And obviously they were concerned. And the police said, well, we really can't do anything about it just because it's so many. Uh, we don't have the manpower. And they suggested you hire a detective agency. That's why they came to us. My detective mind kicked in. The Middle East was gone. And I, I began to start firing questions at them about the details of, of all the things that we would need. We had a tradecraft crafted intelligence. But we had a craft for every case we worked. And I began to fire at what we would need, uh, uh, photos, friends, places she might be staying, anybody that knew anything about her, things that she'd been doing, everything they knew they could think about that they'd forgotten, I wanted to pull out of them. And this would be a case that would be worked on the streets, talking to friends, asking questions. And my, my experience told me I'd worked a lot of these cases, that one of her friends knew where she was at. They weren't telling the parents. So we had to find out which one and get them to uh, uh, talk to us. Timing was important here because at that time in Los Angeles on Hollywood Boulevard, there were thousands of young people that had come from all over the world, as young as 12, that were living on the streets of, of Hollywood. And there was dangers all around with prostitution and drugs and these uh, leaders of, of usually guys in their 20s that were taking these young people in, uh, girls and boys, in their 13, 14, 15, and they were going to protect them 
supposedly, but they were the vultures. So we, we didn't have any time to spare. So we started quickly. Uh, we contacted uh, friends over the next few days. We put people on the streets. I was out there talking to the friends. We found one girl that would talk to us that knew quite a bit about what was happening. And she had pointed us that she was up with a group on Hollywood Boulevard. Didn't know where she was at or what she was really doing there, but that's where she was. So this is when the, the young agents kicked in. Wayne and Wayne were in their early teens, I think, at that time. And uh, along with some other young agents, we hit Hollywood Boulevard and we started putting up photos, talking to people, asking questions. A lot of the of the homeless older men out there on the streets, we would be talking to them, saying, have you seen this girl? And finally, we, we hit pay dirt after a few days. And they told us, one guy told us that, yes, I've seen that at girl and she's over in this house a few streets over with a group that's staying there overnight. And they're usually around there. We set up surveillance on the location. And uh, within a couple of days, we spotted her. We identified her that she was the right girl. And we made a decision how we were going to approach her and take her into custody because she was a minor. And the next morning, we arranged that time. And there was, uh, I don't know, eight or 10 at least uh, around. Wade might have some memory of that. And there was a, a young guy in his 20s that was uh, the guardian of these, uh, of these young people. And we approached her, got her off to the side and told her who we were, that we were, she had to come with us and we were going to take her back to her parents. And this young guy stepped up and said, you're not taking her. Uh, you better have a gun because you'll have to shoot me. And uh, my, my son wanted to tell the story because I, instantly, I don't know why I did this. I just stuck my uh, left hand out with my finger pointed right at him, pulled my jacket back to show my gun and said, I've got a gun and don't make me shoot you. Fortunately, he backed down. And I learned later, he had a, a, a long butcher knife in his back belt that he had a tendency to pull on people. But we got her out safely, uh, and we headed back to the office. And I think, though, I got so excited with all that was going on that I forgot about maybe some of the people that were with me. Wade, did you have any remembrance of that? Well, um, hmm. let's see. I was standing on the side over there, and everybody left. And I just casually backed up, and as soon as I got out of eyesight, took off to the vehicle and got out of town. <laughs> well, yeah, so, I, yes. I, I, <laughs> I was kind of concerned about the girl, and I, you know, I just got all all wrapped up in what I was doing. I think, but uh, um, <laughs> anyway, well, that's yeah, our story it, for today. That, that, that's a great story. It's it's just one of many stories that we'll we'll share over our time on the show, but. Right now, we want to remind everybody who's listening and watching to, if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button, like the show, tell your friends about us, um, let us know. We also have an email, and you'll see it on the screen, but it's, um, oh, I know I need to try to remember the email. It's plittle, P-I-777 at gmail.com. So you can contact us, ask us questions. Um, you can ask us questions. Maybe you have a, a situation going on and, and you'd like to get some help or some answers. Let us know and we will respond to that. So at this point, Dad, is there anything you'd like to leave your audience with? Yes, I would like to leave our audience with something that people have paid me a lot of money to do for them over the years. And I'm going to select just one of those things that I mentioned. Probably the thing that most of us are most concerned about. How do I protect my home? and my family. 
Well, I can give you some techniques here in just a few minutes of how you can do a security audit at your home, something that I've shared with people on television shows and as well as going out to their homes and doing security audits. So this security audit is pretty simple to do. And a lot of it is common sense, which most of the places I go, they aren't being done, even though they're common sense. To your front of your sidewalk, front of your house, turn around, look at your house. First, can you see every door and window visibly in front of your house? You know, how many of us like to have plants and shrubs and everything growing up? Or is your house got grown up plants and shrubs where somebody can hide behind those plants and break in to the front windows of your house? If those are, if your house is that way, then bam back the hedges. I know we like uh, all this green things around our house, but a little less is more in this case because it will give you security. We found that the guys that want to break into homes aren't going to do it where they're being seen. They want to do it where they're hidden. So have your gardener or you trim back and where you can see every window and every door. Do that all around your house. Then at nighttime, come to the front of your house and see what your house looks like. Is it pitch black and dark with no lights coming on anywhere? Well, today with solar lights, it's so cheap and easy to put up both motion and dust to dawn lights. Anybody can put them up. And you don't need an expert to come and do it. Put the lights up that will light up when somebody comes around or they're on from dusk to dawn. They're cheap to operate. And I have found that the two things that are the most effective to protect your home or business is lighting and fences. And the lighting is so easy to do. Then go inside your home. Check out every window. So many break-ins come because a window is left unlocked or the lock is broken. If they need repaired, fix them. If you, you're not able to do it yourself, have a locksmith come. It won't cost that much to have those uh, latches repaired so that your windows can't be forced open. And if I would recommend you putting a deadbolt on your front and back door. Just add some extra protection there. Make it difficult. Then, if uh, uh, you don't have a neighborhood watch in your community, take the initiative. Be the one. Go to your neighbors. Contact them. Say you're concerned. And as they probably are, but sometimes we don't even know our neighbors. So get involved. Ask them what uh, they're concerned about. And then call your local police department. They will send a community services officer and set up a neighborhood watch program where you know each other in your community, you know what's going on, you put up signs all over the place, we're protected, um, we're vigilant, we know what's going on in our community, and I guarantee you, 99% of the bad guys will just drive on past and go someplace else. These things are real easy to do. If you have your home and, and you would like us to take a look at it, send, us, send me photos. I'll look at it and I'll give you uh, my advice on what I would do if it was my home. We'll be happy to do that for you. And I, I want to wrap this up with just reminding you that I, I like to ask you questions and get your input. And, you know, we have the uh, war going on in Ukraine. And it's a tragedy there. Where our hearts go out to the people of Ukraine. And they were invaded by Russia. But the, the big question is, a big political question in the United States right now, is what should we do about it? Should we stay? Should we do less, more, or get out? What's your opinion on what we as a government should be doing in Ukraine? Let us know. We'll get the word out. We want to spread the word to our politicians. And next time, I'll be sharing some more things 
about what you can do to make a difference in your community and help uh, keep you and your family and friends from becoming victims of crime. Well, those are some great questions. Those are some things for us to think about. And I'd like the, uh, the aspect that we can provide people a avenue to share their thoughts. So as we wrap up here, our show, we want to thank you again for tuning in. Whether you're watching, viewing, listening, however you're doing it, again, please subscribe. Please like. Our email again is plittle, pi777 at gmail.com. And so that is our show with our host, the private investigator experience, Phil Little. I'm Wade Little. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. And may God bless America. And may God bless you. <laughs>